afternoon and uh, welcome to the 11th clinical updates in COVID-19, the regular webinar that many of you are uh, attending regularly. But thank you very much to be our strong supporters. To those who are new, this is a webinar organized by the Institute for Clinical Research and IH, and you can gain CPD points. Go to the um, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter to get more information. Please do uh, mark your attendance to get the auto certificate that will be sent to you with your correct email. And certainly, as usual, the slides and notes will be prepared after the uh, webinar. And uh, according to the video, you can also watch that after the session. Today is a bit gloomy, raining here in NIH, and, uh, but we do have three ladies and one gentleman from Sarawak and three from Crane Valley to share with us what it is like living as a frontliner uh, who then managed COVID-19 or non-COVID-19 during the MCO and CMCO. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Dr. Naro Aida, who is a family medicine specialist from Clinic Kesehatan Kuala Lumpur. And uh, she was has been involved in HIV outreach work and uh, so work with a few NGO around KL. So we would like to hear her on uh, uh, how Clinic Kesehatan managed influenza like illness during this pandemic and uh, how uh, uh, her work at KK. So, uh, I will introduce the other speakers as uh, their time comes for their presentation. So, Naru Aida, please go ahead. Thank you, uh, Madam Chairperson. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, so, I'll be talking about management of ILI and COVID-19 in health clinic. So my name is Narul Aida Saleh. I'm a family medicine specialist uh, currently uh, working in Klinik Kesihatan Kuala Lumpur. So these are my references and what I plan to do in the next 15 minutes or so, I'll uh, try uh, to outline uh, the algorithm for management of ILI and PUI in Klinik Kesihatan. And I'll share some of our experiences managing ILI and uh, PUI cases in uh, our clinic. So um, we in primary care, uh, we basically provide community-based, continuing, comprehensive and preventive primary care. So we are actually the point of first contact for the majority of people are seeking healthcare. So the unique thing about us uh, in primary care, uh, so we see patients with undifferentiated illnesses. Okay? And we often deal uh, with problem complexes rather than with established diseases. So meaning when the patient comes to see us, they do not come with a diagnosis. Okay? In fact, they come with a range of problems. And say if a patient comes uh, to see us with fever, it can be anything from dengue fever to just a simple viral infection, or it can be leptospirosis or influenza or even a common cold. So um, therefore, for us in our primary care, clinical judgment on the basis of the patient's disease presentation, disease severity and progression, the age of the patient, the underlying medical condition, and the epidemiologic pattern of the infections in the community, all these are important in helping us making decisions about the patient's treatment and management, especially in those uh, in the high-risk category. So if a patient comes uh, with fever and uh, respiratory symptoms, so we will, like, uh, we will uh, say that they have influenza-like illness if they fulfill a risk estimation, i.e. if they have history of high fever with temperature uh, um, uh, of 38 degrees or higher, and one or more of the following symptoms, uh, that is either cough, shortness of breath, body ache, or sore throat. 
And if uh, the disease is severe enough uh, to uh, require hospital admission and it occurs within the past 10 days, then the term sorry or severe acute respiratory illness is used. So, um, so in this patient presenting with IR symptoms within 48 hours of onset of the illness, so our guideline says, uh, so the healthcare provider should assess the patient and we should see whether the patient has any symptoms and signs of moderate or severe illness. So i.e., so we need to look whether they have any respiratory impairment, whether there's any evidence of clinical dehydration or clinical shock, and we should see whether there's any altered conscious level or any other clinical concerns such as a rapid progression of the disease or whether there is any severe or persistent vomiting. Okay. So of course, uh, we should not forget dengue because uh, our previous dengue mortality uh, review has shown that uh, in adults, uh, around 19% of the, uh, them presented with pharyngitis-like symptoms and in children, almost more than 30% are presented with fever and respiratory symptoms at the first presentation with dengue. So uh, after doing assessment, so uh, the healthcare providers uh, should try uh, to decide whether the patient has moderate or severe disease. So uh, if uh, the doctor thinks that the patient has moderate or severe uh, ILI, so then uh, the patient should be admitted to the nearest hospital uh, for SARI for severe acute respiratory infection. Otherwise, if the patient has mild uh, illness. So next, the doctor has uh, to assess whether the patient has any comorbidity uh, which can uh, be associated with an increased risk of influenza complications. So uh, the comorbidities includes, uh, so we need to ask to look whether the patient has any chronic respiratory conditions, whether they're obese, whether they're any, uh, at the extreme of ages, whether they have any chronic diseases and whether they are pregnant. So if the patient has comorbidities and they have a mild illness and do not require hospital admission, and with mid diagnosis of influenza, and if it comes to comes to us within forty eight hours, then probably we should treat them with Tamiflu for five days. So we should give their uh, home uh, assessment pool for them to do assessment at home and uh, with a kitchen home care advice. And they need uh, to be reminded uh, to come back to see us if their condition worsens. So otherwise, if they do not have comorbidities, uh, so then symptomatic treatment will do. Still, we will give them a home assessment tool and a patient home care advice for them uh, to return back uh, to see us if the condition worsens. Okay? So, um, so this is uh, basically from the Infectious uh, Disease Society of America. Uh, so their guideline is also uh, almost the same with us. So basically, um, if so the healthcare providers need to see whether the patient has any signs and symptoms uh, of ILI. So if yes, then the doctor needs to decide whether the patient needs hospital admission or no. So if no hospital admission required, then uh, the doctor needs to uh, decide whether the influenza testing or will influence uh, the management. For us, uh, in our setting, unfortunately, we do not have any uh, testing for influenza in our cases. Okay? So we just go by, by clinical judgment. So if uh, influenza is diagnosed clinically, uh, then they also suggest for empirical antiviral treatment if the patient is in the high-risk group. So, uh, so how we manage uh, ILI before COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, so uh, we put a triage at our registration counter. So the, the triage are basically the paramedics, either the medical assistant or the nurses. So they would ask the reasons for visit for the patients and, and would explore for symptoms of ILI. 
if the patient says they have fever and or cough or shortness of breath, they will, the, the charger will give masks to the patients and they will direct these patients to a designated area, uh, i.e. a fever center. That means we do not want them to mix with our other uh, patients in the clinic. So in my clinic, uh, we are fortunate because we have sort of uh, plenty of rooms. So we have a special uh, corner, uh, I mean area of the clinic where we designate as our fever center. So they just uh, go to these rooms and they do not mix up, especially with our uh, MCG patients. Okay. So how does uh, the management of IRI differs answer during this COVID-19 pandemic? So this is from our uh, recent uh, COVID-19 uh, guideline, uh, ABC uh, edition 5. So the guideline says patients who come to any health facilities should be screened uh, for uh, suspected COVID-19 at the triage. And we should uh, use the case definition for POI. And uh, the guideline also says that a special area should be set up for COVID-19 to which the patient should be directed uh, and to be assessed uh, in this designated area and this patient should be managed by early. So uh, just to um, reiterate, so PUI, patient under investigation, uh, refers to uh, any patients with respiratory, uh, acute respiratory infection, i.e. sudden onset of respiratory infection. So uh, with at least uh, one of these, uh, the shortness of breath, cough or sore throat with or without fever, and they either have history of traveling uh, to other foreign countries or close contacts uh, with, uh, in 14 days uh, with a confirmed case of COVID-19 or attended an event associated with COVID-19 outbreak. And for person, uh, patient under surveillance are those who get back from abroad and they do not have any symptoms. So I guess for those uh, who travel back from abroad, we do not have much problem because they would be quarantined they are, uh, at the hotels. And for close contacts also, uh, uh, most of the times, the inspector kesihatan will catch them and uh, give them home surveillance order for them to be quarantined at home. But sometimes we do see some close contact who are not being traced by the PPKP, the inspector kesihatan, and they reach our doorstep. So, so the guideline says for patient under investigation, so they should be triaged at the uh, trial at the clinic entrance. So and then they should be seen at the fever center and the doctor should decide whether uh, they meet the criteria for admission or not. So what are the criteria for admission? So uh, basically, the admission criteria are POI who is clinically ill, those with um, uncontrolled comorbids, or those uh, who have uh, confirmed, uh, I mean, uh, say for example, they have some blood tests done, for example, in Gribbles or Lapling, and, uh, and the result says that they are positive for COVID-19. So if they fulfill all these admission criteria, so uh, what we do in our my clinic, we will discuss uh, have uh, we, dis we will discuss with HKL ID physician on call. Uh, so if the ID physician agrees for ward admission, then we will alert the MECC uh, in the uh, emergency department. So the patients will be sent by our clinic's ambulance, and the ambulance then uh, will be decontaminated uh, in the hospital itself before uh, come back to our clinic. Otherwise, if the hospital admission, uh, if the admission criteria is not fulfilled. So we will notify uh, the case uh, to our PKD. Okay? So, uh, so the PPKP or the Inspector Kesihatan then will visit the patient in the home, in the house. Uh, then we will uh, uh, give them home surveillance order for them to be quarantined. Then we will arrange them a date uh, for nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swab. We'll give them home assessment tool and uh, for and template uh, so tell them about this infection. So again, what I'm uh, as I reiterate earlier on. So what is important, uh, more important is the 
management of uh, the movement of the patient injury uh, in the clinic which I will uh, later on. So for patients presenting with ILI symptoms, okay, so for those who do not have any, um, I mean, who, who are not PUI, so how do we manage them during this uh, pandemic? So for patients presenting with ILI symptoms, again, okay, uh, we do not allow them uh, to enter our main building, so they are triage and uh, they were sent and seen by the doctor in the fever center. So the doctors there will assess the patient to see whether they are from the so-called red zone. So uh, in my clinic, uh, so last month, uh, so Kampung Baru and Chowket are the red zones. So if we have patients uh, from this area, we are a bit more alerted, especially if they sort of escape from being uh, screened uh, by the PPKPs. So then we would ask uh, these IR patients whether they have any history of contact with COVID-19 patients and whether they have any symptoms and signs of uh, moderate uh, or severe illness. So then the doctor will decide whether they have mild or moderate to severe disease. Okay? So if they have moderate to severe disease, okay, and then uh, and if the patient is suspected to have PUI, for example, the patient says, oh doc, uh, my friend in the office uh, attended this public forum, uh, so uh, and he has been admitted in Singapore Hospital, uh, suspect uh, for COVID-19 so that makes him a suspected PUI and he has uh, symptoms uh, with moderate to severe illness so then again we would contact the ID physician on call and the patient would be sent to hospital for admission with our designated ambulance but if the patient uh, do not give any history of contact with anybody with COVID-19 so that makes COVID-19 unlikely but since he has moderate to severe disease we will still send him for admission but we will admit the patient as sorry with uh, COVID-19 unlikely. So for those with mild disease, if we suspect them to be PUI, okay, and um, so we will notify PKD, so we will arrange uh, a date for them to come back uh, for the nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swap, and we'll give them the home assessment tool and tell them to come back again if um, so the disease worsens. Otherwise, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the PPKP will visit them in the home and. Um, and uh, uh, serve them the home quarantine orders. Okay? So if we suspect them to have influenza, then we'll manage accordingly, as I mentioned earlier on. And for UR, uh, if the diagnosis of them is URTI, then we will manage them according to uh, our centers and those call. Okay? So movement of the, uh, the ILI patients are important. We do not want them to mix with our other patients in the clinic. So, so uh, we had our triage counter outside the clinic entrance. So the staff uh, must wear at least three ply surgical uh, masks, a glove and apron, and we, had, uh, we ask them to do frequent hand rub before and after touching the patients. And we ask uh, the, this part, this trijer will ask reasons for visits, and those with IRI symptoms will be given a mask and they will be directed uh, to our fever centers. So basically, our fever center is uh, uh, just tents, so built up uh, at the sides of our building. So even the registration of ILI patients are done uh, in one of these tents. Okay? Uh, so this orange tent is sort of a waiting area for the patient. And so then uh, we have a consultation tent. So the doctor will have come up with this um, uh, template clucking uh, for a uh, clucking sheet template uh, so to make sure that the doctor does not miss any salient uh, uh, information and uh, besides the consultation tent we have this doffing uh, donning and doffing tent so for the uh, doctors to put on and put off uh, their PPEs okay? 
So, uh, so we are good enough because DBKL are able to rent us, uh, so these mobile uh, toilets, so that uh, the patients as well as the staffs uh, do not have to go inside the main building if they need uh, to pee. Okay? So, and uh, every day after five, uh, so our uh, the cleansing uh, a company, which is global company, they will do the decontamination in the tents and every day, and day after five, after we see the patient. Okay. So, when it comes to surveillance activity, uh, so we are also also use uh, doing this and so they are by taking sentinel sampling so the main objective uh, is for the sentinel sampling it acts as an early warning system for detection of local sporadic uh, COVID-19 cases in the community so initially the surveillance activities only involve eight clinics but recently uh, the number of clinics has been extended to 26 so those uh, we do not uh, do surveillance for all patients so basically those who are selected are those with acute respiratory symptoms um, who fulfill these criteria, i.e. sudden onset of respiratory infection as with, with either shortness of breath, cough or sore throat, so, um, so with or without fever, and they must not have any contact and with any COVID-19 confirmed cases. So those who fulfill uh, these criteria will have nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swab taken, and um, before this, we are asked to do 10 samplings per week. Now, uh, the number has been increased to 15 patients per week. Okay. So, um, so for our clinic, we send our sample to MKAK in Sungai Buloh. Uh, so we fill up the MKAK forms, uh, one copy to the lab and one copy to our PKD. So the specimens taken are uh, kept in the VTM, the viral transport media, and will be sent uh, to the lab on the same day. And our PKD will trace the results. And those who have positive results will be notified. So a patient will be called and we will arrange maybe for transportation for, uh, for hospital admission either at HKL or Sungai Bulo uh, by our designated ambulance. Okay? And our JKN uh, will analyze the surveillance data okay, on a regular basis and take action on the risk. So, um, so what is the outcome of this uh, surveillance on the sentinel sampling? Uh, so this is a statement from our DG. It says that uh, so the surveillance activities um, basically uh, probably the positivity is not that high, but it is important for so to detect sporadic cases uh, in the community. Okay? As of the 18 week of epidemic, as many as 9,000 odd samples has been taken uh, from ILI and SARI patients, and out of which. Uh, 81 cases or 0.9% were found to be a COVID-19 positive. These are uh, positive uh, cases uh, from the community who do not have uh, any contact with confirmed COVID-19. So the number of sporadic cases is not a lot, uh, but in fact it has been decreasing. So uh, however, uh, it is important uh, to detect all these uh, sporadic cases. Right, so with that, I thank you. Thank you very much, Naraida. This is a real um, well-planned clinic in handling people with uh, respiratory symptoms coming to our clinic with uh, Kesihatan. Uh, I'm sure now that we are reopening our clinics uh, soon and uh, this advice and your project is very clear and our, even our GP colleagues can actually refer to all these guidelines. Thank you. So we now move on to Dr. Shakri. As you know, up to now, uh, HKL has admitted more than 500 cases of COVID-19. And thanks to our respiratory physicians who are following up with some of them who have some um, symptoms. And uh, Dr. Shakri, who is a respiratory medicine specialist in HKL Institute for Respiratory Medicine, 
have, uh, has been saying some of these patients and would like to share with us the circulate of COVID-19 resulting lung uh, scarring in the lung. So please uh, come uh, share with us, Shafrin, on your experience in following up these COVID-19 patients. Thank you, Dr. Go, for the kind introduction. The beginning in December 19, a cluster of unknown uh, cause of pneumonia cluster was reported in Wuhan. And January 2020, a novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 are being uh, identified as the causative organism. So following that, it became a nightmare to the whole wide world where the outbreak was declared as the public uh, health emergency of international concern and basically it declared pandemic later on. So this is creating a history of a mankind. So until date, how many cases are being reported? It's about 6.5 million whole wide world and death toll at 385,000. And we have recovered about, uh, patients recovered from uh, COVID-19 is about 3 million. And uh, Malaysia had a, um, basically uh, close to 8,000 cases uh, confirmed COVID-19 and we have about, I think most of the highest uh, recovery rate, about 6,531 with 115 deaths. So what happened to all these recovered patients? What are their fate? Are they going back to normal to their life? Are they, are they actually up and about as before? So there are few speculation has been around in the news um, over the uh, famous news throughout the whole wide world, saying that some patients who survive COVID-19 may suffer lasting lung damage. And there is a small study involving 12 patients in Hong Kong, which discovered that the corona patients who recovered are being left with damaged lung and may struggle to breathe when they walk. But this is just a small number to, uh, to be looked at. And uh, from Japan also saying that these patients who survive will suffer severe health effects for years. And in fact, Bloomberg also quoted that virus survivors could suffer severe health effects for years. And last, are patients left with poor lung function after COVID-19? It's still a question and these need an answer. So I sh I'm sharing the coronavirus family, which are the, uh, the disease of COVID-19, MERS and SARS. And we could see the similarity in SARS-CoV-2 and SARS, which they actually shared the same receptor, receptor binding, which is the angiotensin converting enzyme 2. And if you look at what happened to the lung in these three uh, diseases, it shows that they have a similar pattern in which that demonstrated on the CT. The three of the diseases will present it with bilateral patchy shadows or ground glass opacity in the lungs. So what were the evidence in the past and how could we actually project what could happen uh, to our recovered or COVID-19 survivors? So we look at only SARS because since SARS and COVID-19 share the same receptors, so post-SARS study showed uh, from this uh, study done by Gregory, uh, fibrosis was seen in 62% of the 24 symptomatic patients. So in this study, they divided into two. So it's quite small number of study. So group one is patient with evidence of fibrosis on CT and group two is without evidence of uh, fibrosis on CT. So if you look at the profile patients that has evidence of fibrosis, majority are men as compared to group two, uh, predominantly are female. 
And the length of stay and the length of ICU admission are much longer in group 1, which is more fibrotic patient, and they receive pulse steroid therapy during this admission. And they have even higher opacification radiographically, and they have more abnormal segment on thin section CT scan as compared to group 2, which without evidence of fibrosis. And besides discovering 62% of patients having fibrosis, the patient also presented with symptoms of exertional shortness of breath and reduced exercise tolerance. Another study, a 15 years prospective follow-up, they're actually looking at the long-term bone and lung consequences associated with uh, hospital-acquired SARS. So what have they found? So I'm just focusing on the lung. So most of the cases will recover, especially the pulmonary interstitial damage and the functionally decline with a greater extent of recovery within two years after rehabilitation. So you could dispute the speculation that had been made before for COVID-19, but of course, we are, we are not sure what we're going to face next for the recovered patient. The third study involving uh, looking at the uh, spirometric evaluation. So it shows that after six months, lung volume and spirometric measurements are normalized. However, they have a low gas exchange or low carbon monoxide diffusion capacity in 12 months follow-up. However, no patient required supplemental oxygen at 12 months, but 6% of patients demonstrated desaturation uh, about less than 88% during exercise. The fourth study, again, is a very small numbers, uh, looking at the exercise capacity and health status of SARS survivors, which showed that at six months, their exercise capacity are lower as compared to the normal population. And again, significant impairment of gas exchange was noted in 15% of survivors. So I'm going to bring you to this uh, classification of uh, COVID-19 that were proposed by Hassan. So there are three stages. So there are three stages of uh, 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 three phases. So we're going to focus at the hyperinflammation phase. So this is the end phase in which that the host inflammatory response at the greater uh, response at the greater end, and the viral response at at the end of the effect. So what happened in the hyperinflammation phase is whereby patients develop the acute respiratory distress syndrome, they develop shock, they develop cardiac failure, and all the important inflammatory markers will be elevated, such as CRP, LDH, interleukin-6, D-dimer, ferritin, and cardiac markers such as troponin T and also anti-proBNP. Following that, I would like to bring to the pathogenesis on how the lung damage occur uh, in a patient who are infected by SARS-CoV-2 or a COVID-19 patient. So SARS-CoV-2 induced lung injury. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that actually bind uh, into the uh, uh, enter to the cell uh, by binding into the ACE uh, converting enzyme uh, two receptor which is mediated by the S-glycoprotein. So as it enters, so it, the, 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 it will go straight to the, uh, so concentrating at the respiratory tract because the ACE2 receptor are highly expressed at the lower respiratory tract. So there are a lot of alteration in the alveolar capillary microenvironment. So all this process, as mentioned earlier, hyperinflammation happen. And this is due to the cytokine storm syndrome 
where all the important uh, cytokines are being elevated, which is very, very pro-inflammatory. And it also causes a dysregulated of release of proteolytic enzymes and also unregulated angiogenic responses. And all these three will actually uh, develop a fibroproliferation with the formation of provisional extracellular matrix. And these processes are also been seen in uh, patients uh, with uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So it's a disease that uh, a form of a pulmonary fibrosis which is progressive. And you could see this pathway actually lead to a pathological fibroproliferation as what we are seeing in our uh, idiopathic pulmonary uh, fibrosis patients. So the reason why they progress because there are lack of resorption or removal of provisional extracellular matrix and therefore there will be a residual fibrosis with pulmonary dysfunction. So this patient, this cohort, you could actually um, anticipate it because they share this quite similar profiles which are old age patients, male, and with comorbidities, especially hypertension and diabetes, uh, and they are smoking or former smoker. However, patients who out from this uh, uh, demographic, uh, they are non-smoker, perhaps uh, they are much younger, female, and they do not have any comorbidities. So they're able to actually remove all these extracellular matrix pretty well, and the lung will resolve without fibroproliferation, and you could actually translate it to when we do follow up, we look at the radiological resolution on CT scan. There's no evidence of fibrosis such as reticulation or tracheal bronchiectasis, and the lung function is back to normal. And this is a study in Wuhan uh, looking at the radiological findings only in COVID-19 patient, and they uh, they managed to get 81. Uh, patient. So they divided into four groups. So group one is patient who are actually asymptomatic. Group two is patient with a symptom onset less than seven days. Group three is patient who has a symptoms onset one to two weeks, uh, more than one to two weeks. And group four is patient who has a symptom onset more than two weeks. So what have they found? on the CT scan based on the group 1, 2, and 3, and 4. So A is uh, from group 1. So there is actually focal ground glass opacity associated with very smooth interlobular, intralobular septal thickening, and this is at the right lower lobe. It's very focal, so it is not uh, bilateral infiltrates of the lung uh, because expected, this is asymptomatic patient. But however, they still have a lung finding on the CT scan. If you look at group two, even more pronounced uh, as compared to the group one. So there is a bilateral peripheral involvement with the crazy paving uh, pattern, which shown in the CT section. And group C is represented from group three. There is a bilateral and again peripheral consolidation, uh, predominantly seen in this uh, uh, group three. And the last group is those who are actually more uh, than two weeks and above uh, symptom onset. So again, still bilateral, uh, peripheral, uh, but with mixed pattern. Now you are seeing perhaps a little bit reticulation, uh, more to like fibrosis, and also with the pleural effusion. And if you look at the uh, distribution of various pattern, so group four actually has all four patterns and Predominantly is a mix and there is a little bit of reticular. Reticular means it's a fine fibrosis. 
So I would like to share from local experience. So we do have, although not many, that we follow up COVID-19 survivor patients. So these are the cases that I've just seen within this couple of weeks. So we start off with the case one. So this is, sorry, this is a lady, 49 year old. She's a non-smoker. She has bronchial asthma. Uh, confirmed COVID-19 positive, initially intubated in another hospital for asthma for a day and transferred over, managed to extubate it. And since the COVID-19 is positive, she was treated with hydroxychloroquine and favipiravir. However, after a, a weeks in the hospital, at third weeks of illness, because she has a problem of a positivity of uh, the uh, COVID-19, she has a slow, uh, uh, persistent viral shading. So that's the reason why she's still in the hospital up to the third week. So she desaturated at one, uh, one day uh, at third week of illness. However, she was started on IV hydrocord based on her CT scan. So this is a CT scan at third week of illness where uh, she has a viral shading, but we know that the, even though it's a positive, but it might it is not infective. So this is the residual uh, lung damage that occur in the COVID-19 patients. So if you remember the earlier um, CT scan that I've shown uh, from Wuhan Hospital, so this represents a peripheral consolidation. And at the basis, you could see a perilobular pattern, and this is uh, actually an organizing pneumonia pattern uh, of uh, fibrosis uh, in this uh, CT section. So uh, we saw her after six weeks discharge from the hospital. She's extremely well, no cough, no breathlessness. She started to work as usual. This is a late, the recent chest X-ray, but we still could actually appreciate a peripheral a uh, very uh, subtle consolidation over the peripheries on the left lung. And from the uh, lung function, we could appreciate there is a restrictive pattern. So false vital capacity and DLCO, anything read than less than 80 is considered a restrictive uh, ventilatory defect. So even though the, she has no symptoms and she has uh, the chest X-ray is almost resolving, radiologically, but she demonstrated a restrictive ventilatory defect on lung function. And her six-minute walk test, she was able to walk up to 500 meters within six minutes and desaturated not significantly. Uh, the lowest is 93%. So this is the first case. I'm going to move on to the case two. 70-year-old Malay lady, non-smoker. So the, just, you know, the first case is a, a young lady. So this one is a, an elderly with a comorbids. Uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 positive, she was intubated for two weeks, mainly for respiratory failure, didn't actually undergone any form of dialysis, and she was hospitalized after a month and managed to be discharged without any oxygen support. And this is an x-ray at third week of illness. What could you see is a lot of lines. So all these lines are represent as a, uh, representing uh, fibrosis. So when we look at the CT scan, this is her CT following that chest X-ray. So from thoracic inlet to thoracic outlet, from apex to the basis of the lung. So you could see all these white, uh, white lines here are all the fibrosis, actually. And this is what uh, we call a pattern of fibrotic organizing pneumonia. So you can see the jagged uh, bronchial wall here. So this is what we call traction bronchiectasis. So the scar 
of the lung actually pulling the bronchus so it become more prominent so again saw her this week uh, so after discharge uh, after, uh, from the hospital uh, about six weeks so this is the latest chest x-ray if you remember the first the chest x-ray at third week of illness and comparing to this current x-ray the lines are almost disappearing and she has she is asymptomatic can do house chores as usual but her lungs has very very minimal crepitation at right extreme base and she also demonstrated a restrictive pattern on the lung function but on walking test she did not actually demonstrate any desaturation so we move on to the third case so i have five cases altogether so this is a man non-smoker with comorbids covid-19 positive he was warded on oxygen support never intubated was treated with caletra and hydroxychloroquine and he was discharged well however he get admitted because of breathlessness but during the second readmission he did not require any oxygen support and on the second uh, admission so at fourth week of illness to be precise we managed to get a hrct for him so what have we found again all these lines are representing uh, a fibrosis with a perilobular pattern. Again, this is an organizing pneumonia pattern. So all these are fibrosis pattern. So if you look at the lung volume, a little bit reduced uh, and it's more pronounced on the right as compared on the left. So these are all the ground glass and these are all the fibrotic bands. And recently saw him this week after six weeks discharge from the hospital, asymptomatic able to exercise, lungs are clear, and you look at the lung function, are back to normal. This is pretty fast because maybe because she was not, he was not intubated. And he managed to walk up to close to 600 meters and only descend about 93%. And this is his latest x-ray. However, uh, this area represents a fibrosis, but we're going to repeat another HRCT to look at the detail of it and comparing the first HRCT to see whether it resolved or not. The fourth case is 68-year-old man, a former smoker, with comorbidities, IHD, on pacemaker and COPD. He is, I think, one of the longest patients staying in ICU for two months, intubated with trichostomy. He received a number of treatment, caletra, hydroxychloroquine, interferon, dexamethasone, and I think at the fourth or fifth week of illness, they, they gave a IV metoprednisolone only one dose because he then complicated with upper GI and sepsis and he was treated with causes of antibiotics. They managed to actually wean him off from ventilator and he was on trachymast upon transfer to the ward for rehabilitation. However, after staying a day or two, he was well under room air and now actually um, mobilizing on wheelchair after two months uh, being in ICU. So if we, we just want to show you his uh, CT scan. So this is at fourth week of illness and we just repeat recently at six weeks later. So this is a lot of lines. Again, all these are uh, a fibrosis line and he has a bilateral pleural effusion. As compared to here, you can't appreciate any more the pleural effusion, but the lines, the white lines are less as compared to the, this first CT. And at the middle region, again, you could appreciate this pleural effusion and you could see more uh, fibrosis here uh, on the right lung as compared to the left. 
and you see even uh, better, uh, I mean, in terms of the lung, there are resolution of the fibrosis, only minimal reticulation that can only be appreciated on this data CT. And at the basis, again, it looks very uh, horrendous looking, uh, white line and the pleural effusion and all this fibrosis, you can even appreciate the traction bronchiectasis which show the degree of the, bron uh, the fibrosis. And the repeated CT scan, it looks pretty much better and the lung volume is actually um, slowly uh, um, getting back to perhaps, uh, I mean, it's better as compared to the previous one, which you see uh, reduction in terms of the lung volume. And the last case uh, that I actually encountered uh, and the primary thing would be the infectious disease and the intensive disease. So it's a 73-year-old man, a former smoker, COVID-19 positive. He was intubated for nine days with severe ARDS. Uh, he received treatment and extubated, uh, extubated and was discharged home. However, he was readmitted for breathlessness on exertion and he was warded for a few days and transferred over to IPR for further management. Um, clinically, there was no finger clubbing. However, lungs, there was a pronounced vacuous sound heard by basically no pediatrima, no, no signs of heart failure. If you look at the lung function, it demonstrated a restrictive pattern, less than 80%. He did not actually walk that far, that's why we cannot demonstrate a desaturation. He tried to preserve his energy, only managed to walk up to 120 meters. This is ABG under room air, which he doesn't actually require an oxygen therapy. But it's just that the breath is not that causing him the problem. So this is his chest X-ray on admission in, in the hospital. So uh, all this, uh, it's difficult to uh, comment this because it's a portable X-ray. But if you could see the, the subsequent chest X-ray, there, there are fine lines. These fine lines are translated to uh, fibrosis. And the latest one that we had in uh, X-ray, even more pronounced fine lines. So you could actually appreciate a left hemithorax volume is reduced, but evidenced by the left diaphragm is elevated. It's being pulled by the fibrosis, uh, fibrotic, uh, the scar lung. So this is his chest, uh, sorry, the CT scan. So he did uh, one in, at fourth week of illness. And this one is six weeks later. So the first one that he had, uh, there is a um, reticulation uh, at the peripherals, uh, peripheries, uh, fibrosis, and this is even finer as compared to this. And subsequent um, uh, section showing that uh, ground glass opacity with dense, uh, perhaps a band consolidation. And here you can see even fine fibrosis with perhaps a, tra a small traction bronchiectasis and all these are evidence of a significant fibrosis. And at the basis, we could even see more pronounced fibrosis here on the latest CT scan. So this patient is actually, um, if you look at the pattern of the fibrosis, if you compare it to the rest of four, so the four actually had a resolve or almost, uh, uh, Perhaps three of them almost complete radiological resolution, only one perhaps in between. And but however, this patient has a worsening, I would say, uh, in terms of the fibrosis. And we actually hypothesize that he might have a pre-existing interstitial uh, lung fibrosis to begin with. 
And on further uh, questioning uh, with him that he do experience uh, breathlessness since 2018 with the dry cough. However, went to a hospital and we investigated for heart problem, but was told heart was okay, but was never being told that he has a lung problem. So these are the five uh, so-called small, uh, perhaps limited uh, experience by the local. So I just would like to actually uh, put up this uh, paper saying, uh, actually uh, it's a question. Follow-up studies in COVID-19 recovered patient, is it mandatory? Well, to say mandatory is difficult, but I think it should be proposed and should be done. And I would say yes. And um, of course, when we look at the patient who has the potential to, be, uh, to have a progressive fibrosis in the future, especially in a group of patients who are prone to become a fibrotic lung, such as a man, former smokers, elderly, and also with comorbidities. So perhaps a, a, a tri drug trial beside antiviral, uh, should be explored, such as antifibrotic, perhaps to slow down or to prevent the process of a fibrosis uh, due, during COVID-19. As a conclusion, uh, post-viral fibrosis causes substantial physiological impairment, is documented in previous corona outbreaks, so a close follow-up for patients after COVID-19 perhaps is essential. A global burden of fibrotic lung disease will probably increase considerably as fibrotic lung disease following SARS-CoV-2 infection burden is likely to be high. And to alleviate severe COVID-19 complication, it is a call for an urgent need for therapies and clinical trials of antifibrotic molecules should be considered. Uh, so that's all from me. So back to Dr. Wu. Thank you very much, Yes, uh, we, we do need to know more about these people who have been discharged. I know this is a new disease and I think um, Ministry of Health is working with some universities, um, academia, to look into uh, recovery of uh, a period of patients with COVID-19 and see what are the uh, organ circulate. Uh, so thanks for sharing and it looks like there are some permanent damage to the lung tissues. Uh, some of the patients. Yeah. Next is another uh, very interesting um, observation. In May, uh, when uh, reports came to us in the newspaper that some children who were affected with COVID-19 do have this Kawasaki-like diseases. And uh, I think we were actually asked among our pediatrician, do we see such uh, uh, observation in France, Italy, even New York? And uh, I have reported it with some children that died from uh, COVID 19 and have symptoms of this multi system, multi system inflammatory condition. So I want to introduce Dr. Hu Liang Chu. Liang Chu is a senior consultant pediatrician and a pediatric cardiologist and currently the head of pediatric cardiology unit in the new Women and Children Hospital called Hospital Tungku Aziza Kuala Lumpur. She has uh, interest in uh, various uh, interventions like pediatric. Uh, she started this hands to on basic basic pediatric and, and echocardiology course since like 2007 and still ongoing. She also has introduced the implementation of pulse oximetry screening for children for newborn uh, for clinical congenital heart disease. 
The interest in Kawasaki started way back and uh, we have an opportunity to work with Yanchu CRC uh, supported Malaysian Kawasaki Disease Registry. So when this Kawasaki like disease observed, we actually asked Liangchu and she has a network in Asia and she informed us and then when she informed Biju that actually we do not see such observation, not only in Malaysia or also in Asia. So Liangchu, share with us your knowledge and information, up-to-date information about COVID-19 and Kawasaki-like disease. Thank you, Dr. Ko, for the kind introduction. Um, I would like also to thank uh, NIH and uh, CRC for inviting me to share this uh, Kawasaki disease and multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children temporarily associated with uh, COVID-19. Okay, um, so I will give a brief overview of what is Kawasaki disease and then show, uh, share some literature on multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children in the world. As uh, Dr. Go has alluded to, we do not see any Kawasaki disease-like uh, disease in our COVID-19 children. So um, we'll go through Kawasaki disease, the possible etiology, pathophysiology, and how do we diagnose Kawasaki disease and the treatment for Kawasaki disease during the acute phase. Then I will review the literature for MISC and then how should we go forward from here? So as we all know, Kawasaki disease is actually acute self-limiting systemic vasculitis. It actually happens predominantly in infants in young children. If you look at this bar chart, this is our uh, statistic from our Malaysian Kawasaki disease registry from 2010 to 2016. And you can see that this registry registers all children zero to 12 years old. And you can see that less than 5% of the patients were above five years old. And uh, a third of the patients were infants less than 12 months old, and about a quarter were one to two years old. So if we put children below two, we constitute more than half or 60% of Kawasaki disease in this country. Kawasaki disease is the commonest acquired heart disease in developed countries. And it is the second commonest systemic vasculitis in children after Hinoch-Shonglan purpura. Kawasaki disease is quite a young disease. It was described by Dr. Tomisaku Kawasaki in 1967 in the Japanese literature. And it was translated into the English literature in 1974. Up to now, despite aggressive investigation and research, we still could not find the etiology for Kawasaki disease. What we know now is it is possibly likely being triggered by some infectious agents and this triggering agent cause possibly a symptomatic infection triggering immunologic cascade in Kawasaki disease and then this genetic, genetically susceptible individuals will present as Kawasaki disease. Many viruses were implicated before. That includes adenovirus, respiratory syncytial virus. I even see like dengue patients that subsequently developed Kawasaki because of persistent fever. And this has been case reported in Thailand as well. And the RNA viruses has also been implicated and has been proposed. And there are two papers actually uh, suspect that uh, RNA virus could be the cause of Kawasaki disease originally, but now we know that it's only a triggering factor 
and other triggering factors can also cause Kawasaki disease. So in Malaysia, in our Kawasaki disease registry, we had a total of 580 patients and our incidence as a nation was 4.23 cases per 100,000 children under 5 and this is in year 2011. If we put regional uh, incidence, the highest incidence was around KL and the incidence rate was 31.1 cases per 100,000 children under 5 in year 2013. This is comparable to Thailand and UK. But if you look at Japan, Japan does um, two yearly nationwide survey and in 2015 and 2016, their incidence was about 300 over cases of uh, Kawasaki disease per 100 children under five. Kawasaki disease is very common in uh, Japan and is also common in South Korea and Taiwan. So far, the pathophysiology of Kawasaki disease is also unknown and there is no pathognomonic clinical features for Kawasaki disease. As such, there is no specific diagnostic test. So our diagnosis of Kawasaki disease still based on what Dr. Tomisaku Kawasaki described in 1967, which is clinical based. And there are five features that must be present. Number one, high fever, more than 38 degrees for five or more days. And then four out of other five features, those are bubble conjunctivitis, erythematous rash, redness or cracked lips or oral mucosa, swelling of the cervical lymph nodes, erythema and edema of the hands, and desquamation of the fingers and toes. Number six and number seven are considered one clinical features. These clinical features do not appear simultaneously. In fact, they appear sequentially. So if you examine the patient at any one time, not all clinical features will be present. So we always have to ask from the history, or did you notice your child have conjunctivitis if the child does not have any more conjunctivitis when you examine the child? So sometimes incomplete Kawasaki disease are actually classic Kawasaki disease where the clinical features has resolved. So these are the features that um, are seen. So you can see red lips, cracked lips, red lips, children are often irritable, conjunctivitis, usually non-exudative, skin rash, all forms of skin rash, erythematous oral mucosa and strawberry tongue, and large cervical lymph nodes, erythema and the edema of the hands and feet, and finally, at the second week of the illness, we see desquamation of the toes and fingers. So based on the clinical criteria, American Heart Association has recommended that um, to diagnose Kawasaki disease, we have to have fever persisting for five or more days and four out of the five principal clinical features that we have gone through just now. And these children must not have any other reasons to explain the fever. So it's a diagnosis by exclusion because measles can present similarly. So if the patient, if the patient satisfy all criteria, that means fever for more than five days and five out of the four out of the five principal criteria, then we classify patient as classic Kawasaki disease. 
In the absence of all clinical features, this patient will be classified as incomplete Kawasaki disease. And if the patient has abnormal or unusual clinical features, and we think that this patient has Kawasaki disease because there's no other causes of fever could be found, then we will classify this as atypical Kawasaki disease. Usually in this group of patients, the coronary arteries are usually involved to help in the diagnosis. And in the, some of the atypical cases, we diagnose them as Kawasaki disease shock syndrome. Kawasaki disease also have other associated clinical features. This is due to the pain vasculitis that occur in these children. And uh, gastrointestinal symptoms are not uncommon. They could have vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, gallbladder hydrops. Hepatitis is not common. We did have a child who presented with jaundice and finally was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease. They can also present as respiratory symptoms, not common, only about 30% of the literature. Um, children are usually irritable, and this is attributed to aseptic meningitis. LP can show raised lymphocyte counts, and patients can have sterile pyuria due to urethritis or metitis, arthritis, and uveitis. In infants, we notice that in our series, the BCG inoculation site is erythematous in a high percentage of patients, commoner than the cervical lymph adenopathy, which is one of the clinical features for diagnosis. And in some infants also, they have uh, perianal erythema and gas formation. So if the patient do not have sufficient clinical criteria to diagnose Kawasaki disease, and we still cannot find a cause for the persistent fever, then we have to depend on inflammatory markers or blood investigation results to diagnose incomplete Kawasaki disease. So if the patient has fever for more than five days and two or three clinical features that are compatible with Kawasaki disease, then we will do inflammatory markers as CRP or ESR. If they are raised, then we look for some of the additional markers like anemia for age, thrombocytosis, hypoalbuminemia, ALT, raised white counts or pyuria. If there are three out of these six conditions, then we will diagnose the patient to have incomplete Kawasaki disease. In the absence of three out of six criteria, we will echo the patient. And if we have sufficient echo features to support the diagnosis, then again, we will diagnose patients to have Kawasaki disease. And so we will treat this group of patients as incomplete Kawasaki disease. If the patient do not have raised CRP or ESR, we, will, we shall watch the patient and review the clinical features again to see if the patient has Kawasaki disease. If the patient do not satisfy incomplete criteria, we shall not treat the patient. We will watch. And if this patient has peeling during the convalescent phase, we, should, we will do an echo to make sure that the coronary arteries are normal. The treatment of Kawasaki disease during the acute phase is with IV immunoglobulins, 2 grams per kg as a single infusion over 12 hours. Preferably, the IV IG should be given within the first 10 days of fever. With this, the coronary artery aneurysm has been reduced to 5% or less. Without treatment, the incidence of coronary artery aneurysm can be as high as 25%.
during concomitantly, we also give anti-inflammatory dose of aspirin. In the, most of the Asian countries and the Europe, we give 30 to 15 milligrams per kg per day, orally in three or four divided doses. In some other countries, like US, they still give 80 to 100 milligrams per kg per day, six to eight hourly. And this shall be continued until 14 days of illness or until 48 hours that the patient is afebrile. Some patients do not respond to IVIG infusion, and this incidence can be as high as 10 to 26%. And the IVIG resistant Kawasaki disease is defined as persistent or reproducent fever after 36 hours of completion of IVIG. And in this group of patients, we shall give a second dose of uh, IVIG, 2 grams per kg, or we can add on metalpranisolone. Some centers use infliximab. There's a study on use of anakinra in this group of patients. And in very resistant cases in some centers, these are the other drugs that's been used. In, we know one center that use plasma pharesis as a second line as well. What are the cardiovascular complications in Kawasaki disease? The commonest com complications are actually coronary artery involvement. It's about 20%. Other arteries can also be involved, axillary artery, ilia artery, and uh, femoral arteries as well. But it's not, it's not common. And we also have a high percentage of patients that can have uh, myocarditis, sorry, myocarditis, clinical or subclinical, about 30% of them. And uh, about less than 1% can develop myocardial infarction, especially in patients with aneurysms. So that is a brief overview of Kawasaki disease. We do not see any such uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children in this country. So this MISC, in short form, was first alerted to the world by NHS National Heart Institute UK on the 24th of April and then the Royal College came up with a guidance on the diagnosis of pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome temporarily associated with COVID-19. And uh, the UK group actually published a letter to alert the world that there's a similar Kawasaki disease-like illness in COVID-19 patients. I shall share this with you briefly later. And then this is an Italian group that uh, published this paper in Lancet, in Lancet. and they, they shared 10 patients with uh, Kawasaki, classic and incomplete Kawasaki disease. And this is a, another paper, circulation paper, that uh, from France and Switzerland that shared some patients with uh, acute heart failure in multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children as well. So uh, with all this alertness, WHO finally came up with a standardized definition. This definition is actually evolving. This is, um, this, this is what I downloaded from the net two days ago. WHO may just um, update it every two to two weeks or so. So the criteria at the moment is children or adolescents zero to 19 years of age with fever three or more days. And two of the following. So conjunctivitis and echo findings of coronary artery abnormalities are the same as Kawasaki disease, and then hypotensive or shock, and evidence of calculopathy, which is not sorry, which is not um, 
seen in Kawasaki disease and also acute gastroenteritis problems, which is seen more common in MICS as compared to Kawasaki disease. Plus, raised inflammatory markers, either an ESR, CRP, or procalcitonin, and uh, no other causes of inflammation, which include bacterial infection, staph, or strep shock syndrome. And in this group of patients, we must also have evidence that this patient has COVID-19 uh, PCR positive or serology antibody positive or a history of contact with patients with COVID-19. So this is WHO's uh, current definition for MISC. WHO has also set up a platform, clinical platform, to invite people to share, as this is a very rare condition, to WHO. But if you share uh, to this network, the data still belongs to the contributors and you may still publish the data that we want. So WHO actually encourage all people to share. There are also a lot of many other groups that have their own platform to share as well. So coming back to this UK group that first um, alerted the world about Kawasaki disease like illness in COVID-19 uh, pandemic. This is from London where the um, they actually serviced about 2 million children in the centre of London and they presented 8 children with Kawasaki disease-like illness. There are more African-Caribbean, 6 of the 8 were African, Afro-Caribbean in descent and 5 were boys, so more prominent in boys. 4 had a family history of COVID-19, 2 PCR positive, all were antibody positive. And they have they all present with hyperinflammatory shock, either atypical Kawasaki or Kawasaki or toxic shock-like syndrome. One child died of a stroke, ischemic stroke, and another child had giant aneurysm. So these are the children. If you see that the children are largely much older age group, they're four, eight, but there are one child with 14 years old and one 13 years old. Remember children more than 12 years old in this country shall be seen by the adult, uh, adult counterpart. So the adult should also be alerted to possible Kawasaki-like illness in this group of children. Um, to highlight the inflammatory markers are all raised. I shall not go through this because it's very detailed. I just want to uh, highlight that the age group is uh, older than uh, four, five years old. There's only one child four years old. And they, they all went into shock and they needed support either in, uh, ventilatory support or uh, ionotrope support for hypotension. So this is the UK group, there are eight patients. And this is the Italian group that they presented outbreak of severe Kawasaki disease-like children and observational study of 10 patients. So um, there were five patients with classic Kawasaki disease where they fulfilled all the clinical features of Kawasaki disease and the four patients with incomplete Kawasaki disease. You look at the age group, they are also in the older age group. There's only one child who's three years old and the rest are more than five years old. So they will be in the bigger age group. There were two patients with enlarged coronary arteries of more than four millimeters. The rest were normal coronary arteries. The ejection fraction for many of the children were, uh, were low. None of the children were less than 12 months old, so infants were not present in this group. 
Thrombocytosis is a feature of Kawasaki disease after the second week of illness, but in this group of children during the acute phase, most children actually have thrombocytopenia, which is different from Kawasaki disease. Um, this is to show their inflammatory markers and the, how they treat this patient. We shall not go through the, with this group, we shall go through the next group. The, the, this Italian group also compared their Kawasaki disease that they diagnosed before COVID-19 till February 2020. And this is the group that they shared with Kawasaki disease-like illness associated with COVID-19. And they compared and they found that the incidence during COVID-19 of Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki-like illness was 30 times more than during ordinary times. And in this group of patients, they have neutropenia, they have they have neutrophilia and they have lymphopenia compared to Kawasaki disease. The platelet count was low as compared to the classic Kawasaki disease. Uh, inflammatory markers were markedly raised compared to Kawasaki disease. So their treatment had their, their treatment was the same. They actually used IVIG and the steroid as well. So the conclusion for this paper was there was a 34 increase in Kawasaki disease-like illness associated with COVID. I'm not sure why the rest of the text didn't come out. They're older children and the higher rate of cardiac involvement. And the other group that um, shared, that published the paper in circulation, is actually waiting to be published, but it's already available in the net. It's the group from France and Switzerland. They retrospectively looked over 20, 22nd March to 30th of April, and they reviewed 35 children who presented with fever, acute heart failure and CRP of more than 100 mg per mil. And these children are temporarily related to uh, COVID-19 as well. The median age group for this group of 35 patients were actually 10 years old. And you can see that a lot of the children were older children. And look at this, 19 of the patients, more than half of the patients were actually in the adolescent age group. And this group of patients may not be seen by pediatricians in this country. So the adult physician has to be aware of this. There's a bit of male preponderance. The comorbid condition, asthma as compared to the general population is about the same. The comorbid is actually overweight. And gastrointestinal symptoms are commoner in this group of patients as compared to classic Kawasaki disease. So these are the clinical features. 30% of them actually also have urological symptoms and the 17% have coronary artery dilatation. So by definition, as they included all patients with acute heart failure and the ejection fraction of less than 55, they were all um, less than 55 with 28% uh, of them being severe congestive uh, cardiac failure with very low ejection fraction. The, the inflammatory markers were all raised. C-reactive protein were high, white were high, neutrophil counts were high, and interleukins were high. And by definition, because patient has um, acute heart failure with poor ejection fraction, the patient either have myocarditis, myocardial edema, or myocardial stun. And we can see that troponin was raised, and the BNP was also very raised. It is unfortunate that in government hospital, we can't do BNP. We have to send our BNP to a private uh, lab and the patient has to pay 200 ringgit per test. 
So their, their treatment is also with immunoglobulins infusion and uh, some of the patients receive corticosteroid as well and other, other inotropic support and because of the coagulopathy in this group of patients, aspirin was also, heparin was also used. There was no death in this group of patients as well. So we can see that multi-system inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID is not common, it's quite rare. There are now groups in US sharing their experience in New York City. There's just a new publication from Washington of 50 patients in JAMA, but they did not emphasize on Kawasaki disease like illness, but general uh, COVID patient in children. So in patients who present in toxic shock, it can be with clinical features of febrile illness with just inflammation or the full spectrum of Kawasaki disease, or it can be multi-system inflammatory syndrome in heart failure as well. So in Malaysia, we had from February till 16 of May 2020, we had 315 children with COVID-19. But none of them had uh, the MISC. Most of the children I was told were mild and asymptomatic. So in conclusion, most children with COVID-19 are asymptomatic or mild. But this group of children can have a potential to develop very severe disease, especially in infants and adolescents. And many of them actually have cardiac involvement, either as myocarditis or coronary artery involvement as well. So MISC itself shares some similarities with Kawasaki disease, but the predominant clinical signs are largely different from Kawasaki disease, where children are younger age group and they have uh, skin, skin rash with uh, desquamation, whereas in, in MISC, a lower percentage have skin rash and conjunctivitis. But the treatment for this group of patients with MISC is the same as Kawasaki disease at the moment, that is to use IVIG and steroids, and it has proven to be effective. So the way forward is we should be aware that in this group of patients with COVID-19 in children and adolescents, they can be mild or asymptomatic, but they can present as um, severe illness initially from the experience shared through webinar by the American and the European group. They can be very well and the BP was just slightly low, but they, they actually went into shock very quickly soon after. So they suggested to do a BNP, which will pick up this mild um, myocardial dysfunction early. So hopefully with this study on COVID-19 associated Kawasaki disease like illness, we learn more about the pathophysiology of this diagnosis, the genetic predisposition and the immunology finding. And with this finding, hopefully it will help us in our scientific understanding of pathophysiology of Kawasaki disease. I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Lachu. Very informative uh, uh, presentation on Kawasaki disease and how uh, this is linked to uh, COVID-19. And I would think adult, uh, adult uh, cytokine syndrome uh, among the, the uh, COVID-19 patients that we see in ICU, particularly the severe category type, should have the similar category of observation that come uh, 
and, and uh, uh, describe these patients which is similar to your children with the signs of Kawasaki like disease. So very informative. We hope the cardiologists among the adult physicians can also look into this uh, cardiac presentation among COVID-19 patients. There will be some questions coming up for you, Liam Chu, about this. And uh, we now go on to talk something a bit different, but it's very important. It's called collateral damage during the pandemic, especially MCO uh, in, in Malaysia particularly. We would like Dr. Woon Peiji to share with us how he continued to care for his patients who have uh, cancer and who need chemotherapy particularly during the time. And uh, so Dr. Woon is a senior consultant uh, oncologist at the Department of Radiotherapy and Oncology in uh, Sarawak General Hospital. And uh, this land is uh, state is bigger uh, than any state in the country. And how he managed to continue his care to his patient wound. Oh, yours from Borneo. Okay, thank you very much, Dato. And good afternoon to all. So, the topic for, for my, I mean, my topic today is actually to continue care of cancer patients during COVID 19. I want to share some experience of our radiotherapy or oncology department in Hospital Umusawa. So these are the disclaimer slides. And first of all, I think I want to share these very beautiful mountainous pictures. Not only to please your eyes, because at the same time also, I'm going to give you the reason why I actually want to share these pictures at the end of my presentation. These and other pictures as well. And I think this very I mean, nice picture as well, carry a lot of meanings. And I hope you can stay tuned up to the end so that I can tell the reason for these pictures, why I share it to all of you. And of course, I think importantly here is actually how much do we know actually COVID-19 as well as cancer, together with cancer. So, I mean, the data is actually evolving, all of us know, in various fields of COVID-19. And for cancer itself, I mean, more and more data has been generated. So, first of all, is the incidence of cancer patients with COVID, I mean, incidence of COVID-19 in cancer patients. There are a few... Uh, data coming up from these epicenters of uh, this uh, COVID-19 in the world. One of it is from Wuhan. Then we know that actually the infection rate is 0.79%. And most importantly here, the 0.79% is in the community itself is only 0.37%, meaning it's about two times higher than the general incidence, I mean incident in the general community. So other than that, another epicenter in Europe as well is the Spain and Madrid as well. So we can see from here as well, this is data from Madrid. So we have this incident rate of 4.2%. And you have to see if, let's say, what exactly is a Madrid as a whole, the incident is 0.63%, which is actually much, much higher compared to those in general population. So these are actually those patient, cancer patients admitted to this cancer center. And these are the data actually, I mean, coming up, generating, generated by this group of with uh, people. And after that, the next question is whether the complication and the death rate, whether it is higher or not, actually in cancer patients for those who are actually in, infected with COVID-19. So data is coming up as well. So again, this is from China data as well. I think it's kerosene in this uh, graph as well as the curve. And so we can see from here, those with cancer and without cancer, and those with cancer, definitely you can see as well, clearly is much higher in terms of death rate. And at the same time, also complications from this COVID-19 as well. For example, ICU admission 
for severe critical illnesses as well as invasive ventilation. And in this similar paper, actually, they have noticed that those with hematologic malignancy as well as lung malignancy, compared to other types of tumor, I mean, cancer types, is actually higher as well. And other than that, I think another important point that this paper actually have highlighted is those with metastatic disease actually have a higher complication rates from COVID-19 as well as death rate from it as well. And the other thing I think is expected as well, those with actually secondaries in the lung as well as primary lung cancer also have, I mean, higher death rate as well as, I mean, severe illnesses from this COVID-19 infection. So elsewhere in the world, whether they have reported higher mortality rate or not, yes, the answer is yes. This is from epicenter in New York, I mean in North America, the New York City itself. So you can see from here, the mortality rate in cancer patients with COVID-19 was significantly higher. It's about 25% versus 14%. Okay, so almost double the rate as well. I think this is very important saying that actually highlighting this uh, patient with cancer when they are infected with COVID-19, they have higher complication rates as well as higher mortality rates as well. So I think we are very lucky at, at this point is because we just have the largest real-world data set investigating risk of hospitalization as well as death rate of COVID-19 patients in cancer. This has been released a few days ago in this ESCO annual meeting in, I mean, in US. And these two are the major trials looking into this. And this is Travolts trial as well as the uh, CCC19 trials. And both of these trials actually contribute to the largest real-world data set at this point in time. So about these two trials, CCC19 trial actually is examining patients across all cancer subtypes. But for Travolts trial, you're actually looking into only lung cancer subtype. Sorry, not lung cancer, it's thoracic malignancy inclusive of lung as well as, uh, for example, mesothelioma and the best. So what we learned from this trial is morbidity and mortality. Let's compare these two trials. We can look at it here. The mortality rate for CCC19 trial that across all tumor types actually about 13%. But for those in Travolts trial, which actually specifically looking into thoracic malignancy, about 35.5%. And ICU admission itself actually 14% from the CCC19 and Travolts actually at 0.3%. For mechanical ventilation-wise, 5% in Travolts as well, but 12% actually in this CCC19 trials. So what about very important, the risk factor that associated with polar prognosis? I think you can see from here as well, and expected as well, logically, the older patient actually did poorly, as well as those with ECOP performance status, who is actually, I mean, higher ECOP performance status or those who had poor common status, and those with active cancer and currently ongoing chemotherapy also have a higher hazard ratio of I mean, uh, death and complication from this COVID-19. So what about guidelines? Do we have it? Actually, multiple guidelines with international collaborative initia initiative has come out for the past two to three months in terms of how to manage COVID patients uh, with lung with actually cancer. So one of the one of the few are like for example the ESMO, the, the major I mean society in the world, the ESMO, European Society of Medical Oncology, as well as um, I mean the rest like nice guideline, all those things actually have looking into this area. And I just choose one of it to present to highlight what is the principle of these guidelines, how should we actually, I mean, uh, what is the approach for us 
I mean, for if let's say follow this guideline, I think for for most importantly, this guideline actually are all encompassing guidelines involve not only the oncologist but those diagnosing on I mean, cancer, like for example, radiology, pathology, as well as surgical oncology and radiation oncology. Of course, not forgetting the medical oncology as well. I mean, you can see from here the pyramid as well. I think this is a principle of all these guidelines is they actually restructify all these patients into high priority, medium priority, as well as low priority in terms of how you actually manage them and how fast you need to manage them. Can you have some delay to managing them as well? So, and then, so most important here is if let's say they're high priority, they should be managed as soon as possible, just like usual emergency type of situation. But if let's say low priority, you may actually defer the, defer the treatment for a while while waiting for the COVID, I mean, I mean, because of the COVID-19, so uh, we, can, we can actually delay the treatment for a while for this kind of patient. I think another thing that we, I have to highlight or underscore as well is just the multidisciplinary discussion is extremely important among all the stakeholders and so that we can personalize each patient treatment, restratify them and treat them accordingly. General principle is if let's say in adjuvant setting, in curative setting, high risk of relapse, including those patients that require curative neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy, these are actually high priority. And those with locally advanced disease, especially those fungating tumor with local crisis, then these are the group that need actually I mean, early treatment as well. And in metastatic setting, those with visceral crisis as well are those patients who actually require early treatment. And they will be classified as high priority. The next thing is before I move to our experience, I just have a brief introduction to all of you about our, I mean the RTU, affectionately known as RTU, our radio, radiotherapy as well oncology center in Sarawak. So we are serving the whole Sarawak. We are the only comprehensive cancer center in Sarawak and we are serving about 2.8 million population. Our new cases per year actually is about 2,000 across all tumor types and our follow-up per year actually is about 20,000 clinic visit follow-up. And our outpatient, we actually have clinic, chemo and we have a satellite site at Pusat Jantong, Sarawak as well. And our radiation service is actually outpatient as well, inpatient, and we have forwards, and I mean, uh, composed of about 109 beds, and our staff are about 200, I mean, composed of doctors, pharmacists, nurses, medical physicists, radiographers, as well as other health uh, care workers. And these are the pictures. I mean, this is before the COVID, we have this picture taken. And um, what you can see from here is I want to highlight, you can see our pre-existing situation actually definitely, I have to say, not conducive to fight COVID. It's actually very crowded and the, the space is small as well. So we actually have the enemy or social distancing before even we have to fight this COVID-19. So I will quickly go through our experience. This is just our experience. We are learning each day and hopefully learn from all of you as well. So I think most important principle that guide us during this time is actually we must continue our service. Very simple, the reason because we are the only center. There is no way, I mean, no place to go for the patient in Sarawak in terms of cancer care. If let's say we reduce or stop our service. But the next big question is how to protect since we want to continue the patient, our staff as well, while we continue on our service. There are actually many challenges that we identified early on. 
So one of the most important is actually we don't have any precedence to learn from. I think none of us actually have precedence to learn from because this is a new thing for all of us. And at this point, after two or three months, we have more, we, learn, we know more and actually we learn more as well. But two, three months ago, when this thing started, I mean, we totally have not much of idea how to deal with it. And cancer patients, we know as well, even before data come out that they have higher mortality as well as higher morbidity. We also know that they are more vulnerable because of the underlying malignancy as well as the treatment that we're giving to them. So the other thing we clearly understand this as well is our limitation of the space. Before this, this I have shown you the photo. We actually have limitation of space, then we actually have problem with social distancing in our department. So our strategy is very simple, teamwork, teamwork, and teamwork. There's no other things except teamwork. So I think most importantly here is let us look into each area. Our patient, we identify what is our problem. There's overcrowding. And we know that the risk of cross-infection is extremely high in outpatient clinic as well as chemotherapy daycare. And at the same time also, another thing that probably more peculiar to us is actually our setup. Because we actually cater for the whole Sarawak, we actually cater, a lot of patients came from all over Sarawak to come to us. And we know that MCO in Sarawak actually involved also inter-district, I mean lockdown as well. They can't really travel between the districts, so you actually avoid the delay. and. I mean, we have to try to avoid the delay and defaults by, I mean, the measure that we have to be taken. And at the same time, I mean, inpatient care, we have four words, 100 GNI beds. It's not very small in terms of size. And we have to really think of how to prevent a cross-infection. And I think one important thing here, I think all of us, if let's say you, you are in this area, we really know that, you know, you are trying very best to actually avoid any lockdown of your words. Let's say there is exposure in the world, you have lockdown. And we don't, from the start, we already don't have much. I mean, we already have limitation of bed occupancy and all those. If let's say the if let's say the lockdown happened, we really have no place to put our patient as well. I think this is something very real and something that we actually are considering even in the start when we face with this pandemic. And other than that, I'll just go through briefly on our CME as well, our cancer research as well, what we have done during this COVID time. So in terms of oncological care, I think it's very simple. Everybody's following it, but I just want to highlight this as well. Actually, in our department, it's very extremely porous. You let's say I came to visit us before. And the most important thing is entry point. I mean, in, in terms of COVID, how to protect is try to actually, I mean, minimize the external attack. What well, I mean, the minimum external attack by the COVID. So attacking from outside. So we actually restrict our entry point to only two in the whole department. At the same time, we also allow only one patient, I mean patient to come in with, let's say the patient will fell with one additional carers, and we actually tighten our screening procedure as well. And one thing very important as well, that initially when we start this screening process, we found that there's a lot of gaps actually when we screen patients. So what we learned actually is, I think it's a weakest link. We identified this weakest link. Actually, we used our strongest team to actually take care of this weakest link. We actually sent MO initially for the one first week actually to mend this area, uh, at the peak area, so that they can actually work together with the Allied Health to do the screening. But subsequently, I have to be very happy to say that actually our, our Allied Health workers is very, very competent in doing it after, uh, I mean, learning from each other with the MO as well. So after that, the social distancing as well, in the clinic outpatient area. What we have done is actually we reduce the number of patients, we restratify them, we look through the outpatient appointment and we reschedule the clinic appointment actually. Just like just like I mentioned in accordance to the guidelines, international guidelines as well, we actually prioritize them. 
And after that, we actually rescheduled the appointment. We had a team that rescheduled the appointment, called them up, and then rescheduled the appointment. And at the same time also, in terms of healthcare worker, we actually rescheduled the work timetable so that they work in, 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 in actually in team best. And the other thing important as well I want to highlight is that we actually decentralize our outpatient care. I think one of the important things that we identified early on is our, I mean, overcrowding our, in our daycare. So one of the things that we have done actually is we set up another new daycare center. Actually, during the initial phase of the, I mean, COVID-19, we actually have two daycare centers. Now we have three. And we actually set this up actually within a day an additional of nine chemo chair and we convert actually by converting our TV room in one of our one of our ambulatory words to become a daycare center with nine chemo chair. And the other thing is that we actually deploy more patients to our satellite site as well. We actually I mean prolong our service time and we increase our staff there. And we also redistribute as well as coordinate our out pay outstation patient from district hospital. So I think importantly here with this is actually the telemedicine. Actually, especially we work very closely with hospital, for example, Hospital Cebu, that we have actually new cases, follow-up cases that we discuss with them through telemedicine. And we actually have a trusted, I would say trusted liaison officer there. It's because uh, early on last year, we actually initiated this project with Hospital Cebu telemedicine, even before the emergence of these viruses. So they actually sent a medical officer for us to train for about four months. Then after that, she returned and know her well. Then after that, we intensified these efforts during this COVID-19 time. Actually, we are trying to, I mean, uh, replicate this model to other hospitals in, 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 in Sarawak, including, I mean, hopefully, uh, Hospital Bintubu and Hospital Nuri will be joining us soon as well. So, what about inpatient care is, I mean, across all the worlds, how do we deal with this as well? Very crowded situation. We are trying to avoid lockdown. So one of the very important things here, I think, is the meticulous planning and effective communication with the team. I think most important here, we have to understand human. Human actually are habitual beings. So from the start, we need to actually change their habits. And so how do we do it actually? We actually increase the, I mean, communication with them. For example, actually, I have, I mean, discussed and communicate closely with all the veterans as well as other team leader in the department. Uh, actually, sending the message that, uh, importantly here to make sure they are, let's say they are well. Please let us know early, and then so that you know now we can we can manage them early. At the same time, also hand hygiene and PP. I mean PPE must be correct, PPE and all those. At the same time also, we actually have contingency plan from the start as well. We have this letter one of the words to become a backup words if let's say one of the words being locked down so that we still have place for the patient to go to. I mean, importantly here that I highlight is just like medicine, we long along the way and flexibility or changing of the plan is needed. And I can say that, I mean, we are ashamed, I have to say that uh, we U-turn many times in our policy because we learn new things each and every day. And other than that, I mean, we have to avoid besides the external attack. I think we are trying to avoid another thing is the internal implosion as well. I mean, for the healthcare workers, I mean, like this is the repeated reminding so that, you know, they have the good habits and all those things. For patients as well, what we do actually, we cohort them and we actually build up uh, with the help of the hospital and all the support. I, I, I can say that the hospital actually been very supportive during this time and they actually help us with building up a respiratory cubicles, warming it up in each of our male and female RTU for those with respiratory issue. And it actually completed in two days. I think it's quite amazing actually this counting can be done in two days time, which before that, I don't think, we never think that it can be done in two days time. 
And, and this actually specific for those who have these symptoms so that we have to be more careful about them. And the other thing is that some of them have traveling history or those coming over and the sons, then we also probably will be placed them into this uh, cubicle. The reason very simple, if let's say there is some cases, I mean, turn out to be unexpectedly COVID positive, then at least we do not need to lock down the whole works, but we can lock down one of the cubicles only. And the healthcare worker can be more cautious in managing them as well. And other area is our CME. Um, of course, the usual, I mean, congregation, physical congregation of the CME cannot be done. So what we do is we do a digital platform. We actually use Zoom and with um, my colleagues, actually we are still presenting every week at journal club. And we're discussing through the, I mean, uh, Zoom as well. And so that the whole department can follow. And the other thing is that during MCO time is something that we have done during these few months, because I think most of us have more time during MCO, some extra time. So in terms of continuing in the CME, we actually are doing, uh, following what the successful story of Sarawak Handbook in Medical Emergency, we're actually in the final stage of making our ABC of uh, oncology care in our, I mean, in our department. Hopefully, the, the book will come out in the next few months. So it's part of the self-learning for them in writing up this. And of course, we will work together with all the MOs, the pharmacies, and not only from our department, actually Unimas, the psychiatry team also work with us closely in this. And at the same time also, even the research intern as well as medical student, they attached to us before this, also helping us out to proofread and everything. So, and in terms of uh, clinical trials, I think this is a very important area. A lot of people think that clinical trials should stop totally during COVID-19. I think, I think we, it's have to, it has to slow down. There's definitely an impact. But should it be stopped totally? Let us look into whether there's any data to support this or not in oncological care. This is also being released very recently, a few days ago in ESCO as well. And this was actually presented by the NCIUS directors. And you can see from here, what it happened is actually approval from the National Cancer Trial Networks showed that definitely the number is dwindling. It's actually coming down a lot, but then it's not stopping as well. So for us, many trials are still ongoing because we actually have a lot of ongoing trials. Patient is actually is having this treatment that is sustaining their life. I think there's no, no way that we can stop it. And then saying that because of COVID, we stop the trials, everything, a patient going to die. I think that's a very, very bad situation to have. So but however, how to deal with it? More efforts definitely have to be put in. And we work closely with the patients, study coordinator, CRA, and sponsor as well. We actually did quite a few virtual visits until we actually have virtual visit with a Sabahan patient as well. So, which is actually undergoing our trials in our center and doing telemedicine. So, at the same time, we actually, I mean, ship some of the oral medication to some of our outstation patients. And of course, this had been, we got approval from NREC as well for this to be done. And at the same time, I think very important as well, not only for clinical trial patients, we always have to address and the fear of the anxiety of the patient. And I think all these need a careful coordination. So, I think, we, I have shared with you all our experience and what we have done, all the measures that we have taken up. But one thing is I can tell you is it's definitely not a smooth selling. We actually have a lot of problems. I think uh, Dr. Ogo know about this as well. I mean, because we actually have been hit by one of the COVID tests in open words that unexpectedly have been tested negative but subsequently developed positive positive page, I mean positivity in our words. So, I mean, this also teach us a lot of things that we still have a lot of gaps actually in our measure and we're trying to fill up, I mean, from day to day and we're still learning, I mean, every day. And what we have learned now today is I still think that I want to underscore this important. Don't forget the patient are still our, cent I mean, our center of attention. And 
don't be swayed away by this pandemic and don't forget the primary problem. And instead of cutting down service, reducing service, we should actually intensify actually our efforts to help our patients. And now this is the pictures that I promised to share with you again. So these are pictures of people climbing up these two mountains. So for Mount Kinabu, very beautiful mountain. So I can say that if let's say I could, this is with your cancer. But with COVID and cancer combination, it's not actually just Mount Kinabalu, it's actually the Everest that you have to climb. So I think importantly here is the uphill climb for cancer patients with COVID-19 is even a harder up mountain climb. So I think we have to put in more efforts to help them. And one size does not fit all. I think this is very important as well. And what I want it to, I mean, what I want to convey is personalization of treatments are extremely important in this area and should not generalize everything. And even you have a guidelines to help you, okay? And every patient is unique. So at the end of the day, I have to say that oncologist is always optimist. Of course, otherwise we won't do oncology. But of course, uh, let's look into the silver lining from this COVID-19, I always say that, you know, we see more clearly of our shortfall in our system. So we can do more to actually fill this shortfall. And the other thing is that importantly here also, we suddenly discover we actually have some superpower. You know, like we can convert a daycare in one day time. We can build a respiratory cube because we wore up in two days time. This, we never think that we can do it. Only with this COVID-19, I think we can do it. And I think not only Malaysia Bole, everybody Bole in COVID-19 time. And another thing is that I think desperation breeds inspiration. I think this, we, have, we have been more innovative during this I mean, difficult time as well. And at the same time, always not forgetting the research opportunity. You can see from here, those data that have been generated, presented by all the presenter, data after data are generated. And these are actually give us a lot of opportunity to actually look into research in this area and for the greater good of the future patient care. So this is my team. And actually we are a very young team and at the same time also the RTU with the sound elements, the mural at the entrance of our department. Thank you so much. Thank you, Moon. And yeah. uh, thank you for the very comprehensive presentation from uh, COVID-19 and cardiology and oncology up to research and uh, the teamwork. Well done. Bonio Bole. Yeah. So now thank you, we come to question and answer. We are almost like uh, another 10 minutes ago. I would like to ask uh, who, uh, Naru about the concern um, about the um, PPE, especially on N95. So the patient here read that since there is this uh, Lancet publication about asymptomatic transmission, do you think that the current SOP is key for frontliner from your clinic kesihatan, the PPE where whether they should now change to N95 mask compared to a three-line surgical mask? I wish we were given N95 masks, uh, but apparently the supply to us is not sufficient. So currently the use of N95 is just for those who are doing samplings for the patients and for our doctors in the um, fever tent. That means the, cons the doctors are doing consultations uh, with the patients. Uh, so far the doctors are doing samplings, they're using N95, whereas other staffs, uh, because of the limitation of the supply, we need uh, just to bear with uh, the treatment. Uh, yeah, and thank you for that. Yeah, this, uh, I suppose with for those who wear surgical, three price surgical masks, maybe a face shield can be an additional protection. Yes. The article also talked about additional yes. so, type of PPE. Yes, we do use a facial shield 
Mm, uh, for those our staffs uh, yeah, who are using the surgical mask. There's an article written by a doctor, uh, an anesthetist in Sunebulo Hospital sharing their experience in wearing N95 during the early days. Prolonged wear of N95 has caused some major skin uh, abrasion and uh, uh, inflammation. So there must be a proper way of wearing N95. Uh, we have to consult your OSHA so that the nose, the skin over the nose won't have any uh, skin problem. Okay, so next picture is to uh, Leng Chu, your colleague. Who are, I think, treating dengue and were concerned that since this uh, multi implementary system uh, condition has been uh, known with low callus and reported false negative dengue serology, so among the people with COVID 19 infection, how should we approach initially uh, when you want to treat this patient about sleep management and COVID 19 management? Can you answer that? I shall try to. Thank you very much for the question. Um, this is through my reading of all this uh, Kawasaki disease like illness and MISC. We know that uh, some of this uh, dengue serology can cross react and give false negative or positive results. So in patients with MISC and low platelet counts, this group of patients, are, the group that has been presented are actually patients who are in acute heart failure as well. So, and this, most of them had low LV ejection fraction. And it has been reported that if you give fluids initially, it does not help in the management. The hypotension was resistant to fluid management because the LV ejection fraction is low. So, um, the, the treatment then will have to give ionotropic support. But for their patients, they were actually given a fluid challenge as well. And they reported that this patient did not respond to fluid management. So, but from experience, we also know that severe Kawasaki disease shock syndrome, their platelet count during the acute phase can be low. Because in the acute phase in Kawasaki disease per se, the, Kawasaki, the platelet count is actually normal. And in the second week of the disease, only thrombocytosis happens. So, uh, in severe Kawasaki with shock syndrome, the platelet count can also be low. So is it part of the cytokine storm that the platelet count also is associated and become low? And this group has uh, all the inflammatory markers they are raised. I am not sure. But uh, I suppose in all patients that come with uh, shocked initial management will be a load of fluid, either 10 or 20 mils per kg, depending on how severe we think is the pulmonary edema. And, um, so I think a quick uh, echo to look at the contractility of the heart is actually important in this group of patients. The, in the circulation paper, they actually recommended that in this group of patients who are initially hemodynamically fairly stable, do a BNP and if the BNP is raised, then uh, suspect that this, actually, this patient actually have myocardial involvement. But in our context, it's a bit difficult to do BNP because it will not come back on time. So I think it's clinical assessment plus um, a quick scan for ejection fraction and a small fluid challenge initially. Thank you, Lam Next, Dr. Woon, we are very concerned about the timeliness and quality of oncology service with this new normal because of uh, physical distancing your clinic. I know it's usually very packed. Oncology clinic. So, to what extent do you think 
with the new normal will affect your timeliness and quality of oncology service? Yeah. I mean, I have to reluctantly admit that definitely has been affected. And because I would say that if let's say I answer this question, we have to look into two areas. Number one, the factors influencing it likely is not only from the healthcare provider, but from the patient side as well. For the healthcare provider, one of the important thing is actually because, I mean, it's not purely just oncology. Oncology involves a lot of stakeholders and from the diagnosis, from the pathology part, and then at the same time also from the surgical oncology, all those, actually to preserve the capacity of our capacity to handle this COVID-19, I think some services actually have slowed down. Then making the diagnosis at the same time also, I mean, staging, working out of the disease actually definitely have been delayed over this period of time. So for us, what we do is we try to adapt to compensate back what actually are the shortfall from here. So I think importantly here, for example, if let's say they can't do the surgery at this current moment, then we try to give new adjuvant therapy, like for example, in breast cancer, and for example, other we also give some new adjuvant therapy for some of the head and neck cancer as well, so that at least patients get treatment, and hopefully they can get a definitive surgical intervention subsequently when the COVID situation is better. And in terms of these quality things, I mean, importantly here as well is from the patient, I mean, patient factors as well. I, it's undeniably that a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety and actually stress from patients as well, especially, I mean, coming to hospital. So it definitely affects as well. I mean, actually, the, the rate of default, all those things is much higher. But unfortunately, I have to say that at this point in time, I don't actually have any data to support. I mean, this is just observation, my personal observation. So, I mean, what we do is actually we are trying our very best to actually adapt and then try to prioritize and hopefully we can actually reduce this, I mean, reduce the implication or damaging implication to the patient. Definitely, again, to answer this question, definitely affected in terms of the quality and timeliness. Yeah, for all the uh, panelists' uh, input today, we have four great speakers uh, sharing with us <clears throat> very important areas. And uh, in the interest of time, I would like to now invite each of you to give us a summary of your present your thoughts for today's topic. So we start with uh, Naru. A few words from about. Uh, I think you have to turn on. The, you are mute. You are still mute, Naru. Yes. Uh, so probably what I would say that um, yeah um, so during this COVID nineteen pandemic uh, so we the healthcare providers in health uh, in health clinics we should be on the alert and uh, um, yeah so it would be good if uh, all health clinics can have a designated area people center outside the building so that you know the, all these patients IRI patients can be seen separately from the other patients in the clinic. Thank you. Um, so, uh, from a respiratory perspective uh, view, basically, um, what I'm hoping that, uh, because since I already um, talked about uh, the complication of the lung uh, due to the COVID-19, so since we have uh, the highest rate of recovery, hopefully that everybody be vigilant and looking for the uh, the uh, what should be expected that if the patient actually complain of something after they actually recovered uh, from their COVID-19. So a proper referral should be done to a specific person perhaps or a consultation. That, that's my point. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, 
Next will be Dr. Ngyongju. Okay, um, thanks, Dr. Go. Um, we, I know that um, COVID-19 in children at the moment in our countries are all mild or asymptomatic. And from the sharing of the ASEAN Kawasaki Disease Clinical Research Network, so far, uh, the Korean has shared that they actually have seen two patients with the Kawasaki disease-like illness or MISC. So, um, we, the, so it's not that we are not seeing, the Korean has just shared two cases with us. So far, in other parts of the Asia-Pacific region, we have not had, uh, ASEAN region, we have not had any cases. Um, from the webinar, um, I think Pakistan did share a case. The rest are uh, North America and Europe. So I think it, it can still happen to our patients in this country. We, we are now aware of it. So the frontliners, they are managing COVID patients. They should be alert and vigilant. If the patient is in compensated shock, that means blood pressure is still normal, but uh, but the peripherals are coolish or the pulse pressure is low. Suspect uh, that this patient may have MISC. The sharing on webinar by the Americans from New York City actually said that they actually will progress very quickly from this stage of compensated shock where the BP is normal to uncompensated shock very quickly within a short period of time. So uh, we have to be aware so, and uh, watch out for these work patients. And another point is that in this KD like illness or MISC uh, happen more in adolescents or young infants. So for the adolescent group, our adult counterpart has to be more aware as this group of children who are more than 12 years old will be seen by the physicians. Thank you. Great, great. Yeah, so I hope the infection disease physician out there, when you have patients in a younger age group, do take note of what Lanzhou has to say. So last but not least, Dr. Woon. So I think importantly here is, I have to reiterate this again, um, COVID-19 impact to cancer patient is very, very real. And actually for cancer patient, we are more vulnerable than the general population when they're actually infected with COVID-19. And the other thing as well is uh, they have higher complication rate. So because of this, I think we have to intensify our efforts even more in this group of patients. And I hope that all of us will not be swayed by this actually COVID-19 and forget about their primary problem. In, in my, in, I mean, in my aspect, it's actually the cancer care for this patient. And at the same time also, I mean, uh, I hope that more and more data will be generated throughout. And at the same time, with this data generated, we are able to manage this kind of patient uh, with a better I mean, outcome. Thank you, Tato. Thank you. So lastly, I'd like to convey Dr. Dr. Christopher um, with regards to us. He will join us next week at the Chinga Update and I, am, uh, I will be alternating with him in moderating this session. So that's all from us, um, from the Chinga Update COVID-19 and NIH. Good afternoon and see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.